like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come here the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dr. Carl Safina, a prize-winning author and scientist whose work has been recognized with Pew, Guggenheim, and MacArthur Fellowships. Professor at Stony Brook University, Safina has just published his seventh book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, in which he explores the premise that animals are highly capable of thought and emotion, weaving a rich embroidery of scientific research and anecdotal evidence. In the way he indicates he's skeptical of certain studies and long-held theories, openly dismissive of others. Beyond Words is a fascinating, exquisitely written book in which Safina not only reaches an impressive breadth, but also achieves a no less impressive depth. I'll speak with Dr. Carl Safina in a few moments here on Talking Animals. Also, later in the show is the prize for Name That Animal Tune. I'll be offering tickets to see The English Beat, November 12th at the Capitol Theater. In addition, later in the program, in the Comedy Corner, we'll hear a piece from, of animal comedy from a comedian never before featured on Talking just as we did last week, although it's a different comedian. So, uh, before I speak with Dr. Safina, let's hear an animal song, one geared for this being World Elephant Day, as well as the elephants, I may discuss with uh, Dr. Safina in a moment. This is Sid Barrett with Effervescing Animals. Elephants, I'm sorry. I'm Talking Animals. An effervescing elephant with tiny eyes and great big trunk once whispered to the tiny ear, the ear of one inferior, that by next June he'd die. Oh yeah, because the tiger would roam. The little one said, Oh my goodness, I must stay at home. And every time I hear a growl, I'll know the tiger's on the prowl, and I'll be really safe, you know. The elephant, he told me so. Everyone was nervy, oh yeah, and a message was spread to zebra mongoose and the dirty. Hippopotamus who wallowed in the mud and chewed his spicy hippoplankton food and tended to ignore the word, referring to survey a herd of stupid water bison. Oh yeah, and all the jungle took fright and ran around for all the day and the night, but all in vain because you see the tiger came and said, Who me? You know, I wouldn't hurt not one of you. I much prefer something to chew, and you're all too scant. Oh yeah, he ate the elephant. That's the late great Sid Barrett with Effervescing Elephants and nod both to today being World Elephant Day and to the elephants we're likely to discuss with today's guest. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing us at dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. Let's welcome Dr. Carl Safina to Talking Animals. Good morning, Dr. Safina. Good morning. 
Thanks for joining us today on Talking Animals. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book. There is uh, so much to discuss here. We could probably blow through our whole, a lot of time, merely reviewing some of the uh, improbable and magical stories about killer whales that you recount. And sure. maybe we'll actually even circle back to some of those uh, later. But I really want to start this morning discussing wolves. And the broadest of strokes, uh, for those who haven't yet read it, the book involves sort of three big sections in which you're observing the behavior of elephants in Amboseli Park in Kenya, wolves in Yellowstone, and killer whales in the Pacific Northwest, alongside top experts who've, who've worked in each of those areas for, for decades. So I came to the book probably knowing the least of those about wolves and found it just brimming with, with just fascinating revelations. You write at one point, wolves may not have words. What they have is recognition, motivation, emotion, mental images, a mind map of their landscape, a roster of their community, a bank of memories, and learn skills, and a catalog of scents with meanings attached as definitions. Wow. Can you, uh, can you expand on that again for, for folks who haven't yet had a chance to, to read the book in particular? Yeah. Well, the easiest way to understand all of that about wolves, which is basically just that they really know what's going on and they know who they are. They know who their friends and rivals are. They, they know wolves in neighboring families, which we call packs. Um, but the easiest way to understand that is to think about dogs, because dogs are domesticated wolves, and dogs retain most of their mental skills from the time when they were simply wolves, and they treat humans the way that younger wolves treat older wolves. The main difference between wolves and dogs is that at some point in its life, a wolf has to take charge of its life, and a dog never gets that opportunity. But when you watch wild wolves, you see them doing many of the things that dogs do with each other and dogs do with, with people. They relate to them very similarly. It's very recognizable. I think the most, the most startling thing for me in watching wild wolves was how incredibly familiar they seemed. Which I was wondering, and I think you maybe at least implicitly allude to that, that maybe when you return from your time at the Wolves, including this visit to this uh, Howler's Inn, which houses uh, captive-born wolves, that you, I think you found yourself sort of viewing your dogs at home like sort of, hey, these are all, all part of a piece, in a sense. Yeah, they are. So much so that um, the dog's scientific Latin name was changed back to wolf. So they used to be, dogs used to be called Canis familiaris. Now they're called Canis lupus, which is wolf. And the subspecies name is familiaris, Canis lupus familiaris, which means they are our wolf. As far as wolves that are actually wolves, let's talk about the wolf that you write in some detail about called 21. What traits uh, really distinguished 21? Yeah, the, the wolves in Yellowstone are named after the numbers on their research collars. Many, not all of the wolves, uh, are tagged with collars, and they have numbers, so they're called by those numbers. But 21 was uh, sort of a super wolf. He had um, plenty of fights during his lifetime with rival wolves from other packs, and he never lost a fight, but he also never killed a rival. And those two things distinguish him amazingly, and he, he also died of old age on his own terms in a place that he chose. So he was really uh, just a remarkable, incredible individual who really distinguished himself. And, and even uh, in, in absentia, I got the sense that Chuan really had a, a meaningful impact on you just as you were sort of developing that wolf section. It just seemed like the ways you just mentioned, but in other ways, too, that 21 really sort of got, got a hold of you in some way. Sure, because not, not only was he just, you know, so incredible 
for a wolf. As I said, he's he's known as the super wolf by all the all the researchers. But um, he he became an individual to me by the fact that he was known to me. Um, we knew who he was in relation to other wolves. He had a name. He he had a history that people understood. And mostly with wild animals, we don't know any of those things. We we just may see an animal, you know, and we'll say, oh, a squirrel or a hawk or an elephant. Um, but all of them, in their own lives, they all have individual histories. They they have relationships to other members of their species. Some of them are defined by their relationships to their family members, like wolves are, like elephants are, like uh, many um, monkeys and apes are, like we are. And what we've seen, you know, most recently is uh, with Cecil the Lion, uh, the incredible outrage over what happened with him was partly due to the fact that among all lions, he became an individual. I mean, many, many lions are killed, and lion populations have declined by about 75% in my lifetime. Mostly, we don't know anything about that, but when one is recognized as an individual, our, our human minds are then more capable of engaging and caring. But for all those individuals, they they have lives you know, no different from Cecil or, or 21 the Wolf or many of the elephants that I saw. It's just that we normally don't relate to them. Not that they don't relate to one another, but that we normally don't relate to them. Well, I was going to get into Cecil a little bit later, but we're sort of here now. So, I mean, obviously when the story first broke, there was a furor, of course. And then there seemed to be any number of furors that erupted in response to the initial furor. All the way to now, we find ourselves, I think it was yesterday's New York Times, there was a huge package about trophy hunting, including why it's necessary to actually hunt these animals. I'm putting that in quotes, air quotes here on the air. Mm -hmm. um, and a sidebar on the Big Five, America's most sought-after trophy animals. So beyond what you've already identified in terms of, of Cecil kind of leaped out partly because he was named and, and people did have something to really identify to, well, what's, what's your take on sort of what's become of that story since? Well, I, I um, in one sense, I the other side saying that there must be trophy hunting, although I think it's, it's horrible that, um, that that's partly true. The reason it's partly true is that the economics of allowing animals to simply live, as they have for millions of years, is that where people don't pay to keep the land open, people don't tolerate the presence of other species. And that's, that says something very bad about us, I think. Yeah. Most of the real plea of my entire book is to say uh, their lives are valid and their lives are very vivid to them and they just we just need to leave them some room they know what to do and they belong on earth but the the strange world that we've created is is such that uh, even just the open land of the original world I mean just nature has to in some way involve people paying other people to do certain things and there's there are two ways that large wild animals are tolerated. One is in national parks, and the other is uh, where people pay to kill them. Um, and I think that there's, there's truth to that, but I think it's a very awful truth that says something really poor about us. 
Well, that's the thing. That's why I, I guess this, this piece yesterday, because of just exactly what you're saying, I mean, we all went nuts about the dentist and whatever, but then for the reasons you just outlined, the dentist was, was a great focal point for the outrage. But then if you really start to learn the situation that sort of the, the backdrop for that, there's a lot of dentists out there and on some level, seems like it's painful to say, but, but I guess there needs to be some of those dentists out there. Well, I just wish we had a different system and a different way of appreciating wild animals. And I, I, I would, you know, in Kenya, you're, you're not allowed to hunt. And Kenya has done very well with protecting and getting revenue out of animals in protected places. But that's a constant struggle as the human population explodes a- across many countries. I put a piece on the Huffington Post, which was about um, Cecil the Lion, but I called it the Big Picture Guide to Directed Rage where I'm, I'm telling people that, you know, we can actually plug in and do something positive for conservation and conservation groups. And there are a lot of people who are trying to protect uh, wild populations of other species and just let them live and let them have room without, um, without kind of acquiescing to this idea that unless people are paying to kill them, there's no place on earth for them. And the thing, of course, with that one lion was it was lured out of a protected place, which yeah. makes it completely odious. Yeah, yeah, just outrageous, for sure. Uh, let me let folks know, by the way, if you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Carl Safina, author and MacArthur Fellow, whose new book, his seventh, is Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. If you'd like to ask Dr. Safina a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So from Cecil, sort of back to kind of where we were before, mm-hmm. it's interesting and, and not coincidental, I suppose, that Spending time in, in Kenya with, with the uh, elephants, uh, time in Yellowstone with the wolves, and time in the Pacific Northwest with the killer whales. All those people that you're observing alongside these experts that have spent all those decades have named or at least numbered each of those animals for, for perhaps precisely that reason. So they're not just another animal out there. In fact, they're clearly uh, distinguished in that way. Yeah, one of the first things you do when you're trying to study other other species is you have to be able to tell them apart. So if you're studying birds, usually people put bands on their legs and let them go so they can see which ones um, do what in life. You know, that's how we start to learn what life is like for them. We have to understand them as individuals because they have individual lives, and many of them have very different personalities from one another as well. So if you just see them all as a bunch, um, you know, you just say, oh, a flock of birds or or a, a herd of elephants or a pack of wolves, you really don't see anything. But uh, I was with people who've watched them for decades, and they can tell you who their parents were, who their children are, what decisions they had to make when things got really tough for them, who who got killed in their group when they uh, wandered into a place where there were, you know, bullets and um, uh, and off the reservation, so to speak. And then you start to really understand the dynamics of what what life is like for them. And one of the things you start to appreciate is that life for other animals is is in broad strokes very, very similar to what life is like for human beings. They try to stay alive. They try to raise their children and keep them alive. They, they value their life. And um, that's pretty much what it is for us as well. Well, for a moment, just as a slight, I guess, tangent, uh, just because what you brought up, I think is really important too, is you know, sort of, we started off in the wolf. So very early in the wolf section, you note that Rick uh, McIntyre has been watching wolves every day, 
regardless of the weather or the conditions, whatever, for 15 years. Cynthia Moss in, in Amboseli has been setting the elephants there for, I guess, about 40 years. Right. And Ken Balcom been observing killer whales uh, in the Pacific Northwest for, I think, nearly nearly as long. So right. so give me your impressions of, of these singular people. I mean, obviously, there's, there's an incredible dedication and passion and more, I'm guessing. There's two things. Two things I think are really important. One is that the first people to study the behavior of free-living animals in the history of humankind and the world are all still working. I mean, we have almost no acquaintance with all the animals that share the world with us. We're just starting to learn about them. This is not something we've been doing for centuries. This is something we just started doing in the lifetimes of people who are still alive, like Jane Goodall is still alive. Mm -hmm. Cynthia Moss, Ken Balcom, uh, the, these people, Rick McIntyre, who you mentioned with the wolves, who helped me so much. The, this is our first glimpse at understanding these creatures living their lives as individuals. And um, we have a lot to learn, and we have a long way to go to internalize an, an appreciation for the fact that we are all on the planet together. And um, these people are amazing, insightful observers with tremendous patience. So when you're in the field with them, they don't just say, oh, look, there's some elephants over there. Let's go over there. They say, oh, look, there's, there's Deborah and there's, uh, there's Agatha's family, and they can tell you what they were doing in the 1970s. Yeah. And, you know, same thing with Ken Balcom. You see a couple of fins of killer whales, and he'll look in his scope, and based on the shape of the fin, he'll, sell, he'll say, oh, that's L21, and... Uh, he's 42 years old, or, or, yeah. or you know, uh, it, it's just um, these people know what they're looking at, and they reflect the fact that these creatures know who they are and who they're with. Yeah, I, I mean, even just reading about it and the way they can identify a given elephant or, or wolf uh, is astonishing. So I can only imagine just being there, and you're looking at that same elephant or fin popping out of the water, and, uh, and it just must be... Uh, uh, just sort of almost magical. Well, they... I spent my whole life with with animals and studying ecology and studying behavior of animals and working toward policies that promote and um, advance conservation. But even with that background, being with these people was completely astonishing. Yeah, their their abilities, uh, their perceptions, their abilities to discern were uh, ex- extraordinary. I mean just about superhuman. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, anything short of that, we, we don't get the information that we need. I mean, you can't just sort of stroll into Amboseli and spend a couple of weeks there and do probably much, if anything, that's meaningful as compared to settling in off, off and on, at least, but mostly on, for 40 years and come away with the information that, that Cynthia Moss has. Right, right. Um, these This handful of people have done such an extraordinary service to the world, really. And they it's not that they're not appreciated. There are some people who appreciate them tremendously, but I would say that they're they're not widely enough appreciated for what they're giving us as far as the insight into who we are sharing the world with and what life is like for them. So from there, maybe describe what their work and sitting alongside them for extended periods of time did to underscore your premise in, in, in the book that animals are indeed highly capable of, of thought and emotion and things that spending time with each of those three in particular did to, to just firm right. that notion. Right. Well, it, w- it was funny because in, in a way there is a paradox, which is that I, I went 
to see how other animals are like us. And in many ways, they really are, because all life is one is, you know, is really one family. I mean, that is the fact of it. We're all related by ancestry and biology, um, and that's true. But on the other hand, the question of how are they like us repeats our main conceit, which is we're only concerned about ourselves. So in some ways, it's absolutely the wrong question, and the right question becomes who are they, like us or not? And so I started I started, I changed my filter, um, and I changed my filter after a specific conversation with Cynthia Moss, where I asked her that question, what has, what has watching elephants for 40 years taught you about the human uh, condition? And she said, I don't think that's an interesting question. I, I'm interested in learning about elephants. Yeah. And um, I'm interested in how all these animals, how ravens make the incredible decisions that they make and how they negotiate this incredibly complex world that they live very successfully in. And I thought, wow, that's, I mean, I, I came to it with, with, a, with a deep appreciation, but that took it deeper. And I changed my filter and I started to really see that um, these other creatures really have their own lives and that we are not the measuring stick for their lives, that by asking who are they, um, not how are they like us, you get a, you get a deeper and much fuller and much realer uh, and more astonishing appreciation of the incredible richness of this living world that that we so so terribly don't appreciate. Yeah, well, so it's interesting that that Cynthia Moss's response to your well, at least one of your fundamental questions, kind of spun it on its side. And there, there in the book, in the course of the book, at least there are a number of research projects, studies that you mentioned. Um, and your view of some is skeptical and others, you know, you're, you're quite dismissive. I mean, one of the concepts held dear by uh, animal behaviorists that you really dismiss is the aversion to uh, anthropomorphism. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, almost everyone who knows almost nothing about animal behavior knows one thing, and that is we should not anthropomorphize. Everybody knows this difficult word. And, and yet I, I completely disagree. I think being anthropomorphic is the best first guess about understanding what an animal is doing. If an animal is acting fearful, your best guess is it, it, it feels afraid. If it's, if it's playing with its babies, it's having fun. And that's a really good first guess. And for the most part, it gets you the right answer right away. Um, then if you keep watching, you have a, a better chance of either confirming that answer or realizing that you might have been mistaken. For instance, if you see elephants mating and you say, oh, they're in love, but then you keep watching them, you realize that the male forms no bond with the female, the male provides no parental care, the male doesn't stick around, and they're not in love. They, they, find, uh, they find mating very, very exciting, but um, they don't feel romantic love. But you can see that by watching and uh, inferring the behavior from the evidence of it. And, uh, you know, evidence and logic is, is what we call science. So, uh, so. A, a, so a good first guess is to, is to see what they're doing in the context of what makes sense. So what's interesting about that to me, uh, Dr. Zafina, is that so many of the people who... Well, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, fall into the anti-anthropomorphism camp. I think part of their contention has been, hey, that's, that's not science. Um, well, and I, yet I, as a scientist, I totally disagree. Right. It's, no, that's it's what's interesting. Good to, it's good to not assume anything, but 
it's bad, you know, don't assume that they feel just like you. You can make a first guess that they feel just like you, and that, that is a good guess. But, yeah. but um, to, to not assume is good science. Be a good observer. See if what you think, which is your hypothesis, is supported by further data, which is, you know, keep watching. But um, to insist that they cannot feel emotions or have any thoughts is bad science because all of the data that we have and all of the logic from from how similar their brains are, how they have the same brain chemicals, how their brain cells, their neurons are essentially identical throughout the whole animal kingdom, are, are shared evolutionary. All of the evidence is that, yes, of course, in order to make the decisions they make and negotiate their world and recognize who they are, they are aware of their lives and they have thoughts and they have emotions. Why, why would we say that a, a creature that is eating ravenously is hungry and that one that has just been very, you know, really exerted itself and is resting is tired and then completely deny them the possibility that they feel happy when they're playing. Yeah. That is not science. Yeah. No, the, the limitations uh, from, from that camp seem, as you're suggesting here, sort of arbitrary. Like, yeah, we'll accept this. We can see this and, and sort of document this. We'll accept this. We can see this and document this. We won't accept this, even though it's every bit as observable and, and probably can be documented just as easily as the first two things. Right. And I think there are two unfortunate reasons for that. One is that it goes against our favorite story. And our favorite story is that we are categorically completely special. <laughs> and there's nothing else in the world as great as us. <laughs> and the other and the other thing is that if you acknowledge that they feel and want to stay alive, um, it makes it harder to do anything you want to them. You have to consider their feelings and their experience of yeah. it. And that, that's not very convenient for most of us. Yeah. No, that's, I think, uh, in some ways the more salient point for all the things that uh, that happen to, to animals that people uh, find themselves making peace with for, for, for very, exactly. Right. Very sadly, many of the things that we say about animals' incapacity to feel or to love or all of these kinds of dehumanizing things, we have applied those same statements to other groups of people that we were intending on horribly abusing. Yeah, yeah. And also, just so many of us that love animals and spend a lot of time with animals, you know, whether we're scientists or, or have advanced degrees, I mean, there's a certain point at which just day in and day out anecdotal evidence counts for something. Yes. Well, the more anecdotal evidence you have, the more it begins to become data. Right, right. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. I'm speaking with Dr. Carl Serfina, whose new book is Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. To join the conversation, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. Uh, we'll take uh, one of our callers who's been holding quite a while. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Carl Safina. Yes. Uh, first of all, Dr. Safina, let me just say that in my view, you rank with Cy Montgomery, Jane Goodall, Edward Abbey, Barry Lopez, and others who attempt to explain to humans that, as you just mentioned, we're not the, quote, best species on the planet. And well, thank um, you that raises much. the question I wanted to ask you to consider with us on the air. On one of the other shows on WMNF, there's a health expert who is constantly railing against veganism and vegetarianism. And I often listen to that and hear speciesism, the idea that we as a species get to eat, enslave, factory farm, experiment on, manipulate, hunt, do whatever we want to all other species because we get to do it because God or our power 
power gives us the right to do it. That seems to undergird the entire human system economically, spiritually, psychologically, and makes us a very brutal species on the planet. Um, along with that trophy hunting thing, what do you think about people who say that, that we can just do whatever we want to animals, especially in the realm of eating them? Well, uh, first of all, I think it you can back that up a little bit and see, as I mentioned earlier, that we say the same thing about other people when we're intent on doing whatever we want to them. And one of the, the worst thing about us, I think, is that the strong obliterate the weak. We, we have all of these justifications that we use, but what it comes down to is they can't defend themselves. And that gives us that that's because we have developed the power uh, to do whatever we want to them. So then we have all these other justifications that we apply. I do think that uh, as far as what we eat, there's a tremendous range of reasonable things that people can say about this. Um, for instance, people who um, are in favor of small, small farming and family farming and uh, a butcher I talked to last week who was promoting the idea of eating less meat. Now, this guy is a, he's a butcher. He goes to small farms, he travels around, and he promotes the idea of eating less meat and of various forms of humane butchering. I thought he was interesting. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to have anything to do with factory farming whatsoever. I mostly don't eat any farmed animals at all. Uh, I do eat some fish that I catch, and, and I actually think that um, some things that are not plants, like farmed mussels and farmed oysters, which actually filter the water and may not have any experience, any conscious experience, I'm not sure, but they certainly don't have a brain like a cow or a pig has a brain, um, taking, farming those and taking them from water that they have helped purify with not having to add feed to them or antibiotics or anything like that, um, that might be better than uh, eating soybeans that come from farms in Brazil where they've cut down the forest to make soybean farms. So I, I think that it, as, a, as a first shortcut, being vegan is uh, overall the best thing that you can probably be. But if you want to get into the nuances of it, the nuances get pretty interesting. And I think there's a, a range of how one can approach this somewhat reasonably. But uh, for the most part, um, I'm not interested in being involved in farming animals or, or killing animals. And there are some people, like I was mentioning this butcher I was talking to, who was making the case that uh, many of these small family farms provide justification for keeping land open rather than uh, having suburban tract housing built on it. Well, that, that's interesting, too. So I think there's you know, a range of interesting things that one can say. But um, mainly the idea that we can just do what we want because of our position in the universe is uh, totally self-serving um, and uh, intellectually and emotionally a complete cop-out. Thank you, caller, for your question. And Actually, let's take one more call. We've got a call. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Safina. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I, too, am a vegan, and I'm a little bit disturbed with Eve insisting that vegans are protein deficient, vitamin B12 and B6 and omega deficient, when all those can be derived from plant material. Um, I was just calling about this bear hunt 
in Florida, they've issued more permits than there are bears. And I find it pretty disturbing that uh, they say, well, the money's going to help the bears. I mean, how hypocritical can you be? And I really appreciate this show and this doctor. Thank you, guys. Peace. Okay, well, th- thank you for your call and your comment. Uh, Dr. Safin, anything you want to say about any part of... Uh... Yeah, I may, you know, maybe I didn't answer the previous caller well enough on the idea of being for or against uh, being vegan as far as whether you can be healthy. I, I certainly know vegan people who are very, very healthy and have lived a long time. And as even Thoreau mentions uh, in his wonderfully sarcastic way uh, about a conversation he's having with someone who is against vegetarianism because he says that it provides no, um, it provides nothing from which to make bones. They're having this conversation while they're walking along an ox that is plowing a field with bones made of nothing but grass. So, yes, it it certainly seems obvious that you can be very healthy and be vegetarian or vegan. Um, As far as the, the bear hunts and the permits and the money going to conservation, you know, this is part of the unfortunate circularity of a world that we have created in in. In the real world, animals have lived and evolved and done quite well, not not only without us, but in many cases with us. Many people lived really pretty well with a lot of animals for a very long time. Um, it's just that when our numbers have swelled, I mean, in my lifetime, the human population has doubled. And when I was a kid, nobody ever said that the big problem with the world was there weren't enough people. But there's no room for these things anymore. And so uh, where there is room, everything has a property value and everything costs money and administration and government costs money because we've set this system up and we've entrapped all these animals within this system where everybody has to pay everybody and their, and their very existence depends on some human paying another human. And that's really, really strange. It, it wasn't like that for the entire history of the planet until, until what, the last couple of generations, maybe? or maybe just this generation for the first time. And at least with the bear hunt, which uh, we had a woman on the show a few weeks ago who uh, has a long history. She was affiliated with the Humane Society of the U.S., and, and but even before she worked for them, was dealing with the bears and bear situation here for a long time and and really had a fairly complex view of it. But, but in some ways it also, unfortunately, is this this bear hunt that's now underway or at least the the selling the license there's just it's just flawed in so many ways and you don't have to be a too much of a cynic to see the license they're selling how many they're selling how many out-of-state licenses they're selling which of course sell for more that in this case it, it really is uh, chiefly about the money and uh, right it's chiefly it is chiefly about the money and i'm I, you know i'm not saying that bears all all live peaceful lives with one another it's not it's yeah. not a picnic to be a, a free-living animal um, although some of them can live decades. Some of them can live... To, there's a killer whale that's over 100 years old that's living off the Pacific Northwest. There are, there are elephants that have lived in the wild for over 60 years, but also uh, they get in trouble. They, they get in trouble with one another. It's not always, it's not always peaceful. Um, they, they fight. They sometimes kill one another, but it's a system that has maintained itself forever, and, and our system is not maintaining them or, or itself. They are on our watch, in, in my lifetime, all of these big animals are in decline, and in most parts of the world, with the U.S. being a, partly an exception to this, luckily for us, um, in most parts of the world, uh, all of the large animals are at the lowest population levels they've ever been at, ever, in history. Yeah. Again, let me let folks know this is Talking Animals. Uh, I'm Duncan Strauss. We're in our final moments uh, speaking with Dr. Carl Safina, scientist and MacArthur Fellow, who's written seven books, including the new one, Beyond Words, What Animals 
think and feel. If you'd like to get in on our final moments and join the conversation, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, Dr. Safina, I've had this kind of notion in, for, for some time, and your book, I think, really underscored it, that, you know, you hear and read countless stories of animals engaging in some sort of remarkable behavior or communicating in some remarkable way. Underlying premise is, isn't this unusual? That's why it's on YouTube or Facebook or in this article or blog piece, post or whatever. But the more of these you encounter or read a book like Beyond Words, it seems like you have to recognize that things do not represent an anomaly. Rather, the, the animals are, are routinely capable of a host of impressive things, and, and we're just sort of catching up. Do, do, I, do I have it's anything to- here? That's totally right. The anomaly is that we, we don't give the rest of the world any credit, and we are so divorced from experiencing the rest of the world that um, many of the things that other creatures do, which, which in other societies, you know, original tribal sorts of uh, hunter-gatherer societies, they respected the animals that were around them. They saw what they did. They saw what they were capable of, uh, and it engendered respect, in many cases, awe. And and now we go around and every time an animal does something that shows that it's conscious or it has a thought, we put it on YouTube saying, isn't this incredible? But the incredible thing is, why don't we Why don't we know about this? Why don't we realize this? They, they have been like this forever. They've been like this since before there were humans on the planet. Well, not to anthropomorphize too much, but I'm sure they're looking at us saying, what dope? So you guys kind of get, get, <laughs> get caught up here. Get with the program, you know? So uh, let me read a quick email here and then I have another quick question too. And then I know we got to let you go. But uh, this uh, says, uh, subject line is fascinating interview. Great guest. I'm learning so much. How long did it take to write this amazing book? And does Dr. Safina have any animals of his own? Well, from the time I had the idea of this book to the time I finished it was two years, which even to me seems really um, admirably um, uh, 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 short. (laughs) Wow. No kidding. But but there's, there's 40 or 50 years worth of watching and being with and around animals and researchers in that book because that has been my life and my career. Uh, so um, depending on how you want to answer it, you know, there, there are anecdotes in there that start back a long time earlier in my life, but my, my way of understanding animals has started a long time ago. But from the time I got the idea to the time I pressed send, uh, it was just about two years to the week. Wow. And... Um, yeah, and uh, animals of my own. So uh, we have two dogs that we love to pieces. Uh, we have two small parrots that were uh, given to us, and we have three chickens, and we have uh, a captive-bred California king snake. I think that's our current full roster. Well, that's a good uh, that's a good population there. And uh, and just to back up for noting that the two years from idea to send on the book. Again, the book is uh, before you get to footnotes and stuff. Uh, it's uh, I think four hundred a little over four hundred pages. And but really uh, rich. I mean, it's 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 broad, but it's also deep. And beyond the three kind of elements that we've talked about in some detail, not as much as I was hoping to, but where it's spending time with. Um, wolves in, in Yellowstone, elephants in, in Kenya, and the killer whales in the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of other animals that are dealt with and referred to in studies that you incorporate, and in, including some experiences with the animals, some of whom you just mentioned. So uh, it covers a, a lot of ground, so I'm, I am all the more impressed that that's, uh, that got all done in, in two years' time. So we're just, you know, actually a little bit over time, but I feel like today's World Elephant Day, and I'm a, uh, as listeners know, kind of a card-carrying elephant nut, so I feel like we should say at least something about 
about elephants today. I mean, any anything we've touched a little bit about on Cynthia Moss and a couple of elephant things along the way, but yeah. anything in particular you want to say? I mean, to me, yeah. uh, the poaching situation obviously is is kind of the most uh, significant and dramatic. But there may be something else you'd like to uh, you know observe before we yeah. sort of the, the the poaching chaos is is really one of the worst episodes in the history of humankind when you understand that these are animals that live really peacefully in their families. And I think my thought for Elephant Day is um, they they show us how to live in peaceful families and what will we do, each of us, to help them live peacefully in theirs. Perfect. The perfect place at uh, which to, to leave it. Uh, thank you. Uh, we've been speaking to Dr. Carl Safin. Again, his newest book is Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. His website is carlsafina, S-A-F-I-N-A dot org. Dr. Safina, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I obviously enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed speaking to you today. Thank you. Oh, I, I really had a terrific time speaking with you, and I, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Take care now. Okay, bye-bye. It's time to step into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner, featuring, once again this week, a comic never before featured on the show. Last week it was Pete Holmes. This week it's Kyle Kinane with a piece I'm calling Cat's Knees on Talking Animals. Like, this is where I'm at socially, if to explain where I'm at on the social spectrum. I recently said God bless you to a cat. Like, I, I was alone in a room with a cat for a while. Like, not even just a brief moment, like an incident. Like, this was a whole afternoon. Not my room, not my cat. But I was fine with this arrangement. Like, this is what I can handle. Me and somebody else's cat, both of us just staring at walls, looking for answers. And the cat sneezed, and then it was quiet. And that's what made it worse. Because if it would have just sneezed, it would be like, oh, God bless you. And then, well, you don't need that. You're a cat. We would have laughed. It would have been fun. But instead, there was a sneeze, and then it was just that moment of just me sitting like, how do I play this right now? Do I say something? I was raised right. I have loving porno shopping parents <laughs> that instilled values in me. It's like, yeah, but it's a cat. <laughs> F- it, I'm going for it. <laughs> so I turn to it. It's like, God bless you, cat. I didn't even know its name. I was just opening up for once. It's like, God bless you, cat. And the cat turned and looked at me, because that's what cats do. They look at the origin of sound. (laughs) But they have very judgmental faces. (laughs) So everything in that cat's expression was just like, why would you say that? That was Kyle Kinane with a piece I'm calling Cat Sneeze, taken from a Comedy Central appearance. Coming up at 11 on WNF, it's Rob Lorai and Radioactivity. Now rolling into the noon hour constitutes a full two hours of interviews, phone calls, news, and more. Meanwhile, as a prize for Name of the Animal Tune, I'll be offering a pair of tickets to see the English Beats, November 12th at the Capitol Theater. Right now, it's time for Animal News 
and announcements. Last night on the NBC Nightly News with the fabulous Lester Holt, their closing piece was about dogs being brought, in some cases as far as 600 miles, to a uh, shelter, the Westchester SPCA, a no-kill shelter, where their chance of being adopted is much, much higher. So they're being taken from what they're, in some cases in this piece, called high-kill shelters, and transported uh, across the country um, to uh, to find homes through the Westchester SPCA. So you might want to search for that online. Great piece by Rahima Ellis, and um, not un... Related to uh, this week or later this week, NBC's uh, doing a Clear the Shelter initiative where they're really uh, pulling out all kinds of stops to help all kinds of uh, animals get adopted out of shelters. I found this in Indiana. I think it's the Kokomo Tribune in particular, but I'm just going to read a little bit. If the weathered scars on Billy Bryant's arm could talk, they'd have an unbelievable story to tell. Luckily, Bryant has plenty of stories of his own. Like the time he removed a pair of four-foot-long alligators from a house that had pit bulls chained in the front and back doors. Or the time the fire department called him to extricate an injured badger the size of a household trash can from the scene. He's just about seen it all in his 36-plus years as a Howard County animal control officer. story goes on from there, but the reason for the story is uh, this man, Billy Bryant, is retiring after 36 years as an animal control officer. So, good for you. Congrats. Billy Bryant, crazy about hoarding stories, but this uh, this came out of a Chicago suburb, Belmont Cragen, where they found not only a house with fifty some odd cats, but all of them were black cats. So I don't know what particular form of hoarding that is. I have a huge soft spot soft spot for black cats. I think, as I've noted many times over the years, but uh, this just sounds like a rough, rough situation. So let's hope that, as tough as it is for black uh, cats, often to find homes, that many of them do. They've obviously been removed from this house, and uh, all right, always something. Yes. I'm Douglas Strauss. You are listening to Talking Animals. The show website is talkinganimals.net. It's time to proceed to name that animal tune. This is a giveaway, but please only participate if you haven't won something from WMNF in the last 90 days. There'll be a prize, a pair of tickets to see the English Beat November 12th at the Capitol Theater. To the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. Again, a nod to this being World Elephant Day. It's named an animal tune on Talking Animals. Perhaps not surprising. Looks like we got a full bank of uh, phone lines lit. Let's take them in order they came. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. Can you name that animal tune? You're on the air. Sorry, my bad. Go ahead. Sorry, you weren't on the air before. Okay, that's right. Duncan, um, there, there's a Laura Nero play coming up in August. Okay, sorry. Do you, can you guess the name of the animal tune? I'm so sorry. We can't really do this right now on the air. Bye. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. Can you name that animal tune? The elephant walk. That's right. What is your first name? This is David. David. All right. I'm going to send you to see the English Beat if you'd like to go. Can you keep them at will call for me at the theater? Well, we'll have to make that arrangement with you. It's not till November, so we'll work out something with you. But uh, stay on hold, and I'll, I'll get your information. Thank you. And didn't Henry Mancini write that song? He, he did indeed. Wow. You should get bonus points now. Thanks. 
so much. All right, we have just about reached the end of uh, this edition of today's uh, today's uh, Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Laurie is up next with what amounts to two hours of radioactivity. I'll be back next Wednesday, August 19th, when my guest will be Dr. Ann Lamprew, a holistic veterinarian who will discuss trends and other developments in the field and in her practice, among other topics, and will respond to listener calls, emails, and texts about their animals. So I hope you'll join me for that. I also hope you visit our website, TalkingAnimals.net, where we make available all sorts of information as well as archives and podcasts of past Talking Animals programs. We also have a link to the Talking Animals t- uh, Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook, the show, and or me personally, and follow us on Twitter. You can also subscribe to our e-newsletter to find out about our guests in a couple of days in advance and other news from the Talking Animals world. That's all found at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Shaw. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. We're closing out today's show with an animal song, one more elephant song, and acknowledgement of World Elephant Day. This is by the great Maceo Parker. It's called Elephant's Foot on WMNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. Community Conscious Radio. Thanks for listening. Speak again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. on Talking Animals. When they're not knowing what to do, I thought I'd get my friend and go to the zoo. We didn't see an elephant or a cage. Someone had put them all on the stage. There were lumps and bumps and all kinds of grind. You know those elephants wouldn't stay in line. I said, I know just what they need. Let's teach them all to do the Wayman Reed. We practice and practice all day long to teach these elephants the elephant song. They looked at us with tight lips. Just kept on moving those big elephant hips. And elephant dancing is a thing to see. And that's when I noticed they were looking at me. I said, come on, elephants, come on, let's go. And that's when one of them stepped on my toe. Ah. Elephant stepped on my foot. 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 Stepped on my foot. You must give Elephant a dirty look. Pretty good gimmick. I looked at my watch, it was getting late. It was about time to open the gate. People came in to see the show. Someone said, Hey, look, that's Maceo. I said, Can I have your attention, please? These elephants are about to dance you down to your knees. They bumped and grind and swayed all day. Started thinking about after the show, hey. I said, Come on, it's not time to eat. We got to get the crowd up off their feet. <laughs>